Uh, welcome everyone to the Coaching of Flourish podcast. I am your host, John. Uh, today I have Bree with me and uh, Bree, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, John. Pleasure to be here. I want to go into uh, your background, Bree, for our, all of our listeners and people watching. Uh, so Bree, you've, you are currently the executive director of uh, Doretha Pressey uh, Foundation, uh, Southern mm-hmm. Scholars. Mm-hmm. And the idea yes, is that right. you help young people uh, who wouldn't normally have access to education like this, get access, get into college. Uh, and you've helped uh, four people, 60,000 in this past year, and you have another four right. coming up. Yes, that's uh, right. And you're a trained, uh, you went through the academic life coach program Mm -hmm. uh, in what year? And who are your trainers? Just last year. And my trainers were uh, the amazing Islam. Teresa was also a trainer. Um, And of course, Raj was amazing. So, yeah. It's it's an amazing team. I feel like uh, if you put like a Venn diagram of people who are into life coaching and people who are into education, the middle part there, you know, these people... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> We're changing the world. Yeah. Uh, so, Brie, so your background. So, hearing all this out loud, here's where you are. Like, this is the impact. Uh, what's it like to be here on on the podcast? Uh, I'm so nervous. <laughs> so, uh, but other than that, I'm truly, truly grateful for the opportunity. Thank you so much. Um, I'm usually a background type of person, um, so it's appropriate that a coaching engagement would get me to come out of my shell and do something like this. Um, So I'm really honored. Um, As you mentioned, we started the Dr. Doretha Pressey Southern Scholars Initiative to honor my mother, um, who was a brilliant, beautiful educator who loved um, students and loved everyone really and loved um, giving back and helping others. She passed away very unexpectedly at the end of 2018. Um, And so my family and I, Mm founded Southern, Scholar, Southern Scholars to honor her memory. Um, I think initially we thought that we would just uh, give scholarships to kids from our, our community of Denmark, South Carolina, South Carolina, which is my hometown, um, a very rural, small, low-income community in South Carolina. Um, so we just thought we'd give them you know, checks to get into school and that would be that. But we quickly learned that kids need a lot more than just money to get to and through college. Um, And so we decided to build a whole program to support our kids. And for me, it was really critical that we include coaching um, as a major component of our program. So I'm really, really excited that we got the opportunity to work with you and your amazing team. Uh, It's so amazing. It's, uh, (laughs) we were just talking just minutes before we made this thing go live about how education is the great equalizer. It is Mm -hmm. the thing that uh, can change the trajectory of generations. Uh, what's been your experience uh, with In terms uh, your, of- yeah, your own education and how it's yeah. changed your trajectory? Yeah, so I was very, very fortunate. Um, like I said, I was born and grew up in um, this small little town in South Carolina. I went to school there for kindergarten and then booked out of there uh, when my family moved to Massachusetts. And then I was in like private schools and top of the line schools. Like I graduated from Montgomery County in Maryland, which is one of the top districts in the country. Um, So I was really fortunate to have that experience. And then I went on to great colleges, Columbia, NYU, um, and so I know what, what it is to, to be a woman of color at a predominantly white institution. And I know what it is to be a person of privilege and to have had those 
opportunities. And so when I look back at the students in my hometown and I see that they are just as brilliant, just as committed to um, making a great life for themselves, but they just don't have the opportunity. It's like, well, how can we not help and give back? And so that's why we're really honored to have the opportunity to work with so many amazing kids through Southern Scholars and to honor my mom's memory because I feel like she would be doing the exact same thing. It's amazing. You just listening to your energy and hearing you talk. Like it's just so like it makes my heart sing. Like there's an element of like you know this is like there is like progress. I mean it's I mean I know it's um, I mean there's a lot there to unpack. But just the whole general thing is wow. I mean, so, so Amois and I went to Brown. We met at Brown. We were college sweethearts and we got married and we've been married now for, I don't know, 17 years. Uh, it's been, it's been a while. Uh, and uh, she's Latina and her experience in college, I mean, also at Brown uh, is very different uh, in a lot of ways uh, mm-hmm. from mine. Uh, what, what do you, what do you feel like is important for people to understand about your, like what it's like uh, to go through college uh, as someone who's, yeah, I mean, African-American and having to deal with, yeah, you're in Columbia, you're in NYU, but you know, you're still having to deal with all of the other stuff. Yeah, um, I thank you for that question. I was really thinking hard about that this morning. Um, you know, it's really hard, John, um, just to be, a black person in this country, it's it's a hard thing. And I think that it kind of gets swept under the rug because we all kind of know that it's difficult. But when you really think about like, okay, so I'm expected to go to class every day, do well in my classes, apply for internships and do all these normal things that college kids do. But I also have to deal with the daily weight of knowing that there are so many people out there in the world that hate me on my college campus just because of the way I look and to deal with the burden of racism. And, you know, I was, I talk to my students all the time about like the events that happened this past summer and just seeing bodies of people that look like me, that look like my uncles, my father, that look like me on the ground being murdered by people that are supposed to take care of us and protect us. Like, it's a heavy, hard, difficult thing to deal with every single day, you know? Um, I think that what helps is the beauty and the remarkable spirit of my people, of Black people, um, of lots of people, but I can speak specifically about my experience and just knowing that despite all of that, perhaps because of all that, we make an effort to, um, I was listening to uh, another panel and a brilliant a uh, young man in the world of the arts talked about black joy. And um, I couldn't agree more. It's, it's that the joy that saves us, um, mm. the hope for something better in the future that keeps us moving forward. But to answer your question, it's, it's not easy. It takes, it takes a lot of effort and discipline to get through it. And um, so, and that's another reason why I was interested in coaching because I wanted my scholars to always know that they had someone there with them to help guide them through uh, the journey of higher education. Right, right. I mean, I think it's, uh, I mean, even at, even at Brown, they, they had a, uh, a program that was meant to, I don't know, uh, they called it a third world transition, which now, I mean, this is back in the early 2000s. They've since changed that name. 
uh, for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but it was meant for uh, people of color to go to, like to have a, uh, basically a, um, a, a, a experience on a workshop. Uh, like they went there for, I think uh, three or four days earlier than everyone else and got to bond. And then the rest of the students came. Amois went to that. Mm-hmm. Um, I did not. Uh, they didn't, uh, it was only, it was not for white people, but mm-hmm. I feel like they should have done the opposite where had um, an like awareness and race training for white people to understand what is going on. Like, hey, you know, wake up. I feel like a lot of that has happened this past summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was your experience with how you, like, how you felt like the understanding shifted? Uh, um, <laughs> it's hard to say. I mean, I think that there was lots of like immediate reaction and everyone saw what was going on and everybody wanted to immediately do the right thing. And so we saw these brands and companies come out with all these diversity initiatives, which is great. You know, it's really fantastic. But I think um, for me, for a lot of my friends were like, okay, this is cool, but what happens next? And Mm -hmm. how long will this last? And are you just doing this to be a part of this moment? Or are you willing to make the necessary changes that will actually affect change in our world. Um, and so I think, I, I think that what was great about the moment um, over, over the summer was that so many people were mobilized. It wasn't just black people. It wasn't just poor people. It wasn't just Latino people. It was everybody all around the world that said, this is wrong and we need to do something about it. Um, so I feel like it was a wake up call, but I'm wondering now that we're awake, what are we going to do? Right, like it looks progress looks promising, but we have to wait and see if it's going to stick and last, and what what shifts and doesn't shift. Exactly. I mean, I think I've said this. I think almost every week. I feel like on the podcast, uh, and we especially talk about race. It frightens me as a white person to know what my experience was lacking growing up, mm-hmm. and only until after I met a moist and saw the world through her eyes did I understand. Whoa that's scary to me mm-hmm. um, because I feel like there is a huge gap in empathy and understanding. Um, what, what do you see as next? Like if you could paint like uh, the next best, the, let's say the under, like the understanding of most people uh, progressed, where do you see the next step in that progression going? Um, if I could paint, if I could yes, paint Yes, that's it. the question. You got it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. We're in the space. I think that we, it really takes making major changes in legislation um, mm-hmm. and in the way that this country is run. I mean, when you think about education, a lot of people say, oh, the educational system is so broken. It's not broken. It's designed to do exactly what it does, which is to keep a certain segment of the population in control and in power, and to make sure that the other segments of the population do not attain that power. So are we really talking about making changes? Because if so, that means dismantling these systems of oppression, or at least like critically, critically evaluating them and seeing what needs to be changed and making those changes instead of, you know, talking about it or creating all these studies, like, like for reparations, for instance, Congress is having like yet another conversation about should it, should we even have a conversation or should we even begin to study 
this idea of reparations. And I mean, I'm, I'm not saying if I'm for or against, but I'm just saying like the time we're past the time of having conversations. Like it's time to make, to take some action if we really want to see um, real change. Right. I view education as the vehicle for that. And, yeah. you know, you're looking at even the creation of like school districts and things like that, which are designed specifically to privilege, keep privilege in certain areas and keep privilege out of other areas. I mean, there's some pretty significant things that we as a society have to look at right. um, that I don't see happening in the next couple of decades. I mean, yeah, it just feels exactly. like, I know, it's, you know, um, but but I will say that I feel like this next generation coming up, they're so, I mean, they're so with it and savvy and engaged and they are ready for change. I mean, and mm. when I talk to my scholars, I'm just like so blown away by how motivated and engaged and intelligent they are. And I, I feel like if anybody can really make real change in the world, it's, it's these kids coming up after us. So it's up to us to make sure that they have those tools to succeed. Yeah. I mean, so we have a 13 year old and a 11 year old, two older girls and two younger boys. And our girls are such powerhouses. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh goodness. It's like, uh, she's already saying stuff like, you know, both of my parents are life coaches or, you know, stuff like that. So mm-hmm. to give her cover for her very coachy stuff that she says on all of her <laughs> classes and things that's great i can imagine she must be like so cool to be around in school like it's just a different it's a different paradigm it's a paradigm that emphasizes kindness over knowledge it doesn't mean that knowledge is not necessary but kindness needs to come first Mm -hmm. and if there's kindness in the space there's trust built there's safety then that's the best way to gather knowledge Um, it seems that we're you know still reeling from centuries of uh, just having to deal with stuff as a society that we have not dealt with. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, even looking back, well, I've been studying systems theory, looking, doing a lot of research on this stuff, looking even at, at, at concepts you know that were created around the 1600s and how they played out over the you know centuries. Right. Um, yeah, we have a lot. This has we have a lot of work to do. But I feel really like our our uh, this younger generation absolutely is amazing. Like yeah they have like they are more with it and connected than other but this is maybe this is also true parent whenever paradigm shift then other people can open up like mm-hmm. you know internet happens then we have we're using google docs not microsoft word anymore mm-hmm. what how do you because i feel like there's a lot of energy and like a lot of excitement too like this next mm-hmm. generation might look different or this next next view of education looks different how do you see that or what do you see as the difference in this like how education will look or the opportunities here Oh my gosh. Um, I'm, I'm really curious, John. Um, I think about it often. I wonder if like these brick and mortar buildings, if these IVs are going to still continue to carry the same weight for students. So many students are just like, they can go and get a full class on like Khan Academy or whatever, and like take courses at Harvard from there. And especially now that everything is virtual. Um, So I wonder if that will help to kind of level the playing field a little bit um, in terms of higher education. I'm certainly hopeful that it will, um, but I think that there's lots lots of other ways that, these, that this younger generation will disrupt our whole notion of what it means to be educated. And it's not just about like learning in a 
huge classroom at a big institution. What do you no, think? I, yeah, right. I mean, we're <laughs> in it. So we use we use OutSchool a lot for mm-hmm. stuff, which is, I mean, you can take a class on anything. And we have homeschooled before this whole pandemic happened. Uh, and so it felt like, you know, we've worked from home, we work remote, the, you know, uh, coaching ED was hundred percent remote. Mm-hmm. We do remote training. Uh, our girls are both homeschooled. They do a lot mm-hmm. of things remote. Uh, I think that, I think the whole paradigm has shifted and yeah. the thing, so two things are going to happen. One is that um, more students are going to access online learning than before. Mm-hmm. We're going to shift back to in-person models, but not, it won't go back to the way it was. So there'll be more mm-hmm. people who stay online than before. Mm-hmm. What that does is I think I feel like it gives opportunities for people to like people who have a course to teach, to teach more specialized courses. Mm. Like our daughters are learning. Um, they took uh, Paloma, the 13 year old. She took uh, speeches, uh, important speeches by African-Americans in the past hundred years. Wow. From a professor, I think a professor at Rutgers. Wow. And she's 13. And That's she's amazing. in a Zoom class with like 12 people. I mean, it's some, and they're looking at like really like amazing stuff, you know? That's so cool. Right. And that's so just, what's that? we're, in, we're in Oregon. Like, what? <laughs> we're, 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 what? We're, how is that happening? Yeah. But then this idea of access still comes up, right? Because That's it. My, our work is in a really rural area of the country. And when most people think of rural communities, they think of like the Midwest and farmland, but no, we're in a very small rural community in South Carolina and broadband access is very, very, very limited. We had to scramble to provide uh, broadband access for our students when everything went remote. So. You know, even though there's all these opportunities, who's going to get left behind? And I fear that it will continue to be those that have been left behind. Uh, That is exactly it. That's the thing that scares me the most is that the pandemic is adversely hurting the people who are the most vulnerable. Exactly. And it's something that we've been thinking about. I've been thinking about a lot. And how do we, how do we do it? Uh, You know, Yeah, no, it's 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 a huge problem, um, mm-hmm. but I think it's one that. I mean, I do I do think it will shift. I, I think we have about another decade of, of pain, and then I think yeah. the technology is going to catch up. That most people, if they want to get connect, want to get connected, can get connected. Mm-hmm. Um, the issue then I see is not so much external knowledge, but internal knowledge. Mm. Like, how do you, um, how do you provide a level of support when sometimes it feels like uh, the assumptions made by certain classrooms or teachers feel like, okay, this support's not going to, it's not even going to be that great. Or like, why is it going to be worth it? Or am I going to get burned again? Or is this going to be something that I just feel like, oh no, not, not this again. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. I've done some presentations at uh, low income schools and there seems to be such like students have such barriers, such walls, put up almost immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you, as, as an academic life coach, like how, how do you manage those walls? And then how do you manage the, the overwhelming need for support with the capacity to give it? Ooh, great question. Right. Um, 
I think, you know, one of the major things that I learned from my training uh, as a coach is trust, right? It's one of the first things that we were taught is trust in the process, trust in your client and trust in yourself, right? So, uh, and one of the things that Islam and Raj were really, really good about was helping me to trust that I was capable and able to do this work. Um, and so when I go into a difficult situation, I have to, I guess, hone in on that and, and really trust myself and know that, that whatever is required in this moment and the situation to support the student I have, right? Mm -hmm. And so when you go in with that, that, that helps a lot. Um, and then trust the process, but also trust the client. Um, there are so many times when I wanna tell my students, do it this way. <laughs> like, trust me, I know this is the way that you need to do it. But um, we had a student this past semester who um, ended up working way more hours than I wanted him to work. And I thought that it would be detrimental um, to his grades, but he was like, look, I got it. Trust me, trust That's me. Awesome. And so that clicked for me and I was like, okay, I'm gonna trust you. And he ended up getting his highest GPA to date. So um, when I, to try to answer your question, I think it's about um, being very realistic about the barriers that, um, that my students have to face and what, you know, we as a society are facing, but also knowing that like this small thing, small part that I'm playing in their lives, it will make a difference ultimately. Um, and I can trust them to gain what they need to gain from the situation. Wow. It's got to feel like there's such a mountain to climb. And how do you sustain yourself in that daily grind? Um, I talk to my mom a lot. <laughs> yeah. um, I feel like she's always, always with me. Um, every, don't make me cry, John. <laughs> <laughs> but every, um, like every major decision, I'm always like, asking for her wisdom and her guidance to get me through. My grandmother, um, who was my mom's mom, passed away three weeks after her, after my mom passed away. So um, I feel like I have, uh, and we've also named a scholarship to honor her because although she never got her, she never even got her high school diploma, but you know, she had eight kids and she made sure that every single one of them graduated from high school. The majority of them have their um, undergraduate degrees and master's uh -huh. degrees, my mom had her doctorate degree. So, um, so I lean on them a lot. And then of course the entire community, um, my family, um, friends, my partner, um, you know, <laughs> so, so I lean on them, but I also just looking at my scholars and looking at all the other kids in these communities and knowing that like, if they're just given the opportunity and given the support, they will succeed. It's not, they're not getting into the schools because they're not capable. It's just because of the way that the system is set up. Our kids right now, every one of them has more a 3.0 GPA or higher. Um, one of our scholars who's planning to become a physician uh, earned a 4.0 GPA her very first semester during a pandemic, mind you. Um, their average GPA is 3.8. So they're, they're rock stars, they're amazing. Um, it's two of them are at predominantly white institutions, two of them are at uh, HBCUs and they're both doing an amazing, amazing job. So, or there are all four of them are. So um, when I look to them, that's what gives me strength to keep going. 
I remember those client sessions where I thought, you know, dealing with the weight of the world and then I get into a client session and get one-on-one and go empathetic for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And it just felt like this complete break from everything else. Yeah. Like exactly. it, I didn't have to worry about a thing. I could just be there hundred percent for them. And exactly. I think it's hard to explain. I don't know the, the emotional recharge or I don't know what it is. What's the word for it? There's gotta be a good word for it. I agree with you. It's hard to explain. It's just like when you're in it, like it's, 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 it's an amazing thing to, to, um, to be welcomed into someone's life in that way. What I found working with students is once you break through that shell, then they want to almost overshare. Mm-hmm. They want to say, here's all the stuff. Mm-hmm. And some of it's really heavy. Mm-hmm. And I think what's beautiful about the coaching model is that it doesn't say that us as coaches have to know what to do with that. We just have to be with it. It feels like a lot of what our society on a macro level needs to do as well Mm -hmm. around the ideas around like there needs to be a simple be with the pain, be with the understanding, like just be with, don't don't have to make it immediately better or make it, you know, feel like minimize it or, you know, over-dramatize, just be with. See, and that's what makes me a little bit hesitant about what happened during this moment over the summer. It's because we were, everybody was so quick to react and like put out a statement. And it's like, like you're saying, like, let's actually sit with it. Let's sit with what like 400 years of oppression has done, you know, and what, what it's still doing. Like, are we actually taking the moment to acknowledge that? And if so, then I think that we could have a much better outcome. But if we're just like looking at it and saying, oh, this is horrible, let me put out a statement and um, make these superficial changes, then what's really gonna change? Thinking back, looking historically at pandemics and historically after a pandemic, there's a a cultural flourishing that's happening. And um, I think that something similar is going to happen. I feel the shift. but it's not everywhere. It's not. Yeah. not everywhere. At all. <laughs> <laughs> right. Gosh. But it is some places. And, that's, and I think it's a lot yeah. of places, John. Mm-hmm. I think it, yeah. So I, I'm very hopeful, like you, that this will be the moment or one of those moments where we have a great shift, a great awakening. Um, not a, not only in our culture, but like just in humanity in general, where we're ready to move past all of this nonsense and division and come together. So I was thinking about last night. My um, yeah, I'm just thinking like how uh oh, what was it? Um, Amos has been listening. Uh, Going back, we live about a mile away, an hour away from Portland. So sometimes the girls have acting class and, you know, take the trip in every now and then. 
but they've been doing it mostly online too, which is amazing. Uh, but they listened to the uh, Good Night Story for Rebel Girls uh, mm-hmm. to and from Portland on podcasts. And they were telling me, uh, we're talking about this story of uh, the little girl in Montgomery who was the first one to go to the school. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I forget her name just escaped me at the moment. Um, me too. Yeah. Who is that? I know. I'll look. I'll find it here. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Google it. Who is that? I should probably <laughs> Google her name before I launch into this story. But it was. I mean, she was amazing. Are you kidding me? Like, so it's even that story. There are details of the story that are useful to know, right. um, because they were they they would make people feel bad if known. Like, so it wasn't mm-hmm. like they just picked six random African-Americans, no, they had to pass a test right. that they made impossible to pass. Right. But then six people did it. She's right. one of the six people who did it. Right. And so by law, they had to let her get in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and every day, uh, you know, she had to endure people saying the most hateful things to her. Right. And then one day she stopped and just looked at them and mumbled something and uh, kept going. And the marshals who were having to look at her you know, look after her said, you know, what are you doing? Like they took her to the principal. Like, why are you, that's not safe. Like just get in there. And she said, well, uh, I was praying for them. Wow. And she said, I usually pray for them on the way over on the car ride over, but I forgot. Wow. And so I stopped wow. and had to pray for them. And that blows my mind for her to get to that point. And I think at the root of it is that the people who are filled with hate, they do themselves just as much damage, but they don't see it. They don't, they don't know it. More damage. I would say way more damage. Um, uh, I did not know that story, but it doesn't surprise me at all. Um, You know, I think that just like black joy has been critical to us as a people making it this far, uh, faith and um you know a commitment to to do that to be kind and to to um not let like that insidious like racism get to us like one way one barrier against that it has always been our faith in god and the ability to pray for our enemies um you know for they know not what they do because what they're actually doing is harming themselves way more than they're harming us. Um, Baldwin always talked about that, how, mm-hmm. how like racism hurts the racist far more than it hurts the people that, that they're attacking. So yeah, that doesn't surprise me, but thank you for sharing that story because I wasn't aware of it. It's amazing, right? Like, are you yeah. kidding me? I, I'm gonna look at our name up right now. Okay, up cool. right now. I gotta find it. I just, <laughs> you know, uh, um, the it's amazing like being a do you, do you have little ones no no i don't well you're sleeping like if you get like yes with no sleep it just goes out like it's like oh especially like proper nouns you know like i just <laughs> i can't get those in my head sometimes yeah we got a puppy too we got a over like because they always wanted one it's so the girls are getting old enough that can take care of it it's amazing our georgiana our second oldest she's taking puppy training they're doing online puppy training like dog training serious? online yeah, yeah i've never like, even heard of that what's a week she does dog training it just dog is amazing oh, it does release cool. it's like four months old and does a release what kind she's of dog is it she's having any uh here i'll do a screen share 
she's here, but yeah. Here, I'll show you. Do screen share. There she is. Oh, so yeah. cute. Yeah, yeah. yeah very so cute. So she's like a little fluff ball. Yeah. <laughs> my uh, little sister has a little Maltese and uh, my partner has a black lab. So I love dogs. <laughs> But I, I hadn't heard of the online training and I need to look into that. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty awesome uh, to, cause she's, she's doing it. Like she's actually uh, doing it. Um, cool. Let's see if I can find her name. Uh, it doesn't say who. Are we talking about Claudette Colvin now, right? I Maybe. feel like. Or is it? I'll get it in a minute. I'll look at it right after this and I'll put it in the thing. I don't want to take too much time, but I really want okay, to get her okay. name. <laughs> ah! I'll get her name. I'll get her name. Okay. Um, yeah, no, I, I feel like there's such, um, there's such an internal resistance that you have to build up too. Like, you know what I mean? Like you, you just, I want to say like, it's not something that I think you get used to as much as you, adapt like adapt to in order mm -hmm. to um be able to just make it through yeah I mean, um what i mean in terms of coaching skills and coaching tools like what are some of the coaching tools that you find you use most in your life in my personal life mm -hmm. or professional <laughs> yeah Oh, wow. Um, definitely listening. Um, I thought I was a good listener. Like I, I, I used to pride myself on being a good listener. Um, and then when I got into coaching and Islam was like, <laughs> like, this is what deep listening actually is. Um, so I, I definitely try to use that as much as possible. Um, the trusting is huge for me. Um, I'm always working on like trying to trust myself more in situations. Um, and then I love like all kinds of tools, like uh, future self is my favorite. <laughs> um, and I love using that with, with our scholars, Wheel of Life, obviously. Um, yeah, but there's so many great tools that, that I gained um, from the experience. By the way, I've been wanting to thank you because our cohort was very unique in that we went through the start of COVID together. So we all went through lockdown together. We experienced the uprisings together. But because of COVID, I was very concerned about um, the money coming into our organization. I didn't want to like take away any funds from scholarship dollars. Um, so I was ready to withdraw from the course. Um, but Matt reached out to me, um, one of, one of uh, Coach ADU's um, amazing um, team members. And he reached out and he said, no, you know, your, your class wants you to be there. So we're offering you the scholarship. So Thank you so, so much for doing that because it was, I mean, it was literally uh, life-changing for me to be able to have that experience during that time. I was also very much still deep into grief and uh, one of my other classmates was also grieving. Um, and so we were able to um, bond over that. And I, I made genuine friends in that course. I feel that Islam is a friend um, that I'll have for life. Um, and Rosh is someone that I'll always look up to. So thank you for, uh, for the scholarship and for the opportunity. It's, a, it's an honor, really truly to be in a position <laughs> to be able to, um, to keep you. I remember the conversations around uh, 
learning about your organization and you know what, what are you going to do as a leadership team and it was really an easy decision frankly thank you so much John. Really, <laughs> it's like of course are you, <laughs> yes of course like let's let's make this you know let's make this happen uh i mean i think it's uh it's also i mean part of the larger larger mission of what we're up to as an organization yeah. like it is exactly aligned for us as an organization to help organ like help organizations like you and the Southern scholars do what you do. Yeah. Like, this is it. And part of what I saw, like when I, the, in the position that I was in, I mean, I studied Greek and Latin at, mm. at Brown. Like that's so dorky. <laughs> and you know what I mean? <laughs> it's so nerdy. It's like, you know, I know like what umlaut and, you know, different <laughs> accent marks are in Greek. Right. That's, wow. that's how, yeah, that's how far down that rabbit hole I went. And, um, you know, there were times when, so then I met Amoyce, then we found coaching. I was teaching Latin at the time. She got into coaching first, but I thought this is really going to change the face of education. I agree. That's it. I agree. And if we're really going to have an impact on society, let's change education. Mm. And so I feel like there's a big, there's a big opportunity here in the education space to further equalize it uh but it's going to take a tremendous amount of work but any i mean anytime there's a huge shift um there are opportunities yeah yeah that's what that's the way i look at it but uh no free yours is exactly aligned to what we want to support um what like looking at it the the ideas of you know even in coach training itself like the kinds of friends you make there what was the most surprising thing about uh, the coach training experience for you? That I cried like every week. <laughs> um, I was shocked that I was so open and vulnerable in my class, um, like from the jump. Like, uh, I think we were all just really open. Um, I think that that says a lot about our instructor, Islam, um, and Teresa as well, um, when she came in to sub. Um, but it, there was just such a feeling of safety. There was no judgment. Um, it was just like a really beautiful space to be in. And especially, like I said, during that time when we were all feeling all these different emotions. So um, that shocked me. I, was, I really thought, okay, I'm gonna learn how to be a coach. And like, I didn't think that it would be so uh, emotionally involved. Oh, it changes everything. Mm-hmm. I feel like being able to listen empathetically, like active empathetic listening is, it changed my life. It fundamentally changed my life. Yeah. I didn't think I was a good listener. I thought I was an okay listener, not amazing. Mm. But now I know, yeah, I, I can listen. I can <laughs> really listen. Uh, and I feel like there's a, there's such, there's such power in that too. I mean, it, yeah. and it feels like we don't really have a good vocabulary for describing all the aspects that come up when you do lean that far into listening. I agree. Like what, when you, I, I literally remember like where I was sitting when I, when like empathetic listening, like first made sense to me. Uh, what were like, if you had to break down even your insights around listening, like what were the major milestones in that, in, those, in that insight? I think it was just, it was honestly because I, I studied psychology um, and I even, I, I went to London and started a PhD program. Like I was, I really 
intended on becoming a psychologist. And so, um, and my friends always told me that I was a great listener um, and they loved talking to me. So it, for me, it was really understanding that the type of listening that I was doing before was cool, but I think I just had to break this bar barrier of like feeling like I was already a great listener and understanding that there was a deeper level of listening. So once I was able to break that and then actually like, you know, take a breath and actually witness it and feel what, what it felt like um, when I was one-on-one -on -one with one of my classmates, and, and also being listened to that deeply, right. oh my goodness, it, it really, it changed everything. And it, like, it's different than being in therapy, I think. Um, I don't know how, but it's, it's just, it's like a different thing when you're being listened to by a coach for some reason. Do you find that? I don't know. Totally, 100% yes. Okay. <laughs> but it's hard to tell therapists that. And I think, <laughs> and I also think that, but therapists also know I mean, I think they're therapists and coaches, uh, the, the relationship is symbiotic. It's not mm -hmm. like one yeah. is, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. taking away clients from the other. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I feel like both of them have uses, but, uh, people who have psychology therapy backgrounds often come in and say they have to unlearn what they learned before. That's what it was. Yeah. And so they have exactly actually double work because you have mm -hmm. to unlearn it. And they often think they're awesome. So <laughs> right. coming with their right. PhDs and stuff, and I go, that's great. That's great. But this is a whole different thing, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, because it is different, even, even positive psychologists, like what they do is they, they, this is the same kind of thing they look, but it's in a positive way. So they look for patterns. They do, they design studies and they try to get science and do these, inter, in, you know, science that says this is the benefit of this intervention. Uh, but still the expertise in the room is with the positive psychologist. It's not with the person not the client. Right. That's what I love about coaching is that you don't have to be an expert. You just have to listen right. and be curious. And it's right. like I know freedom. that your client is the expert. Such freedom. It's like, I agree. ah, it's so, it's just like, why would, what? Like <laughs> I get to know less, play more and have bigger impact. What? Okay. Yep. Like that's yep, what yep. we're doing here. Uh, but there is some, like, there's a cost to admission though. You have to, there are very strict internal, um, patterns, bias, uh, mm -hmm. assumptions, skills that you have to either release or develop. Right. Um, yeah. It's a crazy, it's, it's a wild process, you know, um, mm -hmm. what would, what would be your advice to someone just starting out in their coach coach? journey? Mm -hmm. Whew. Uh, congratulations. First of all, um, Uh, I was going to say go in with an open mind, which is important, but more importantly, go in with an open heart. And, um, you know, Islam always talks about um, having a willingness to be vulnerable. Um, and like she would always celebrate when we were willing to be vulnerable. So I think that that it's huge. Even when we were practicing, um, it made a huge difference when people were willing to open up, you know. Um, so I think just be open open to the process <laughs> totally and how can the coach train edu community support you what's the oh my gosh more than you already have um i think you know my goal for our organization as we grow is to bring it bring on more coaches um so i obviously want to move forward and get my uh, oh my gosh what is it i see 
Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yes, credential. I see. Yeah. Thank you. ICF Everyone does credential. it. I'm so used to it. Like, <laughs> um, but then I also want to bring in more more coaches, and I would love to have them go through um, this journey as well, so that they they're able to to support our scholars. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, let's talk. Let's see how we can make that happen. Awesome. Um, and we'll put your we'll put a link to your your website and organization here uh, on our website so and bio yeah your bio too for sure yeah awesome. i mean we're we're getting there i feel like we have a little bit of a backlog uh of and we're creating more content than we're actually able to like put on the website and publish and we just did a website upgrade and all those kind of fun things that are happening on top of everything else but <laughs> we're going to get on top of the blog here and make it make it work Great. um i'm just so just thankful for your for you what you're doing Thank you. Uh, you know, the whole, your whole story. And I'm sure this won't be the last time we'll have you on the podcast. And Great. Uh, yeah, hope you have a good, uh, good rest of your week. Uh, for those thank listening you. live, thank you so much for being here. Uh, and for those listening on the recording, thank you for listening. Uh, this has been another cast of the Coaching the Flourish podcast. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>